Well, again, thank you for allowing me to come and minister God's Word to you. It's been uh, a fun-filled few weeks. Uh, thank you for the fellowship. Um, I feel like for my family and I, we always feel like Waikai is kind of like our home away from home. And uh, sometimes my daughter will say, well, can we make this our home? I say, no, we have to go back. But again, thank you. I'm always so encouraged by the servants that you have here at Waikai Church, just looking at you know, all the things that were taking place with VBS. Uh, the church is certainly filled with those who love Christ and those who love Christ's people. Well, if you have your Bibles with me, would you turn in them to Ruth chapter 1? Ruth chapter 1. And this will be our last sermon in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. And that in verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. Hear God's holy and inerrant word. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, give us the grace to receive your word as it really is, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Speak into our hearts, and we ask that you would speak into our trials as we give ourselves over to the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, one of the principles at work in the story of Ruth is that death is the way to life. It's one of the divine signatures in which God has written into this story. That suffering and death is the way to life. And so here is Naomi. Into her life comes the death of her husband, Elimelech, and then the death of her two sons, Malon and Kilion. And yet from the devastation comes new life. The suffering and death experienced by Naomi paved the way to bring about life for Ruth. The Apostle Paul, he sheds light on this principle with these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. He says this, that in our afflictions, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
And so what is Paul saying here? That suffering and death leads to life. Now, beloved, where, where did Paul get this principle? Where did he learn this principle? Well, I think the seed was planted as he watched, if you remember in the book of Acts, as he watched Stephen being stoned to death. And you can, you can just ask, well, why did this man suffer? And why did this man, Stephen, suffer and die? He was one of the finest Christians of the church, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, yet he was now dead. Well, why did God ordain this calamity? It's because his death would lead to life, the life of Saul. And Paul, as he was now called, he, he, he never forgot this, that as death worked in Stephen, so it brought about life in him. And here in our Old Testament story, we see that as death worked in Naomi's life, so it brought about life in Ruth. And you see, church, if we take a step back, this, this principle finds its highest expression in this, in none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as death worked in Jesus Christ, so it brought about life in me and in you. I've said this before. This is the gospel of Ruth. And it may be this morning that as you evaluate your own heart and soul that, that you are void and empty of this life. Maybe you've been coming out to church recently and this life is something that you don't possess. Or maybe you've been coming out to church for years and maybe even decades and this life is something that you never possessed. Beloved, hear the, hear the call. Come to Jesus Christ for life. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, his death was purposed to bring life and that to sinners. Death is the way to life. And so this morning, it may be that you're in need of this life, in need of the forgiveness of sins, in need to be reconciled to a holy God. Come to Christ for life. Well, as we enter back into the story of Ruth, how did life come about for Ruth? You'll remember that while Naomi was in the fields of Moab, she heard that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. That the famine which began the downward spiral of events in her life had been reversed. And so Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, they set out for the land of Judah to make their way back to Naomi's former home. But some, somewhere along the way on this 50-mile journey, Naomi convinced herself that it would be best for her two daughters, these two women, not to go, that they go back to their home in Moab. Well, why? It's because everything that these women needed was in Moab and not in Judah. A future husband, children, a happy life. There was no way, no chance that all this could be found if the daughters-in-law went with her. And so she exhorted them, remember. She said, go back home. Go back to your mother's house. Go back to your people and go back to your gods. And remember, Orpah, she complied. She did this very thing. She, she went back to her people and she went back to her gods. And at that point, we, we never hear from her again in the story. But Ruth, Ruth refused and it's because something had happened to her. Something had occurred in her. God used death to bring about life in her. She was converted. And the proof of it was this, that she was willing to forsake everything to be with God and his people. She told Naomi, your God is my God. 
And your people are my people. Therefore, where you go, I will go. And so there at the crossroads of Judah and Moab, Naomi and Ruth, they kept going towards Bethlehem while Orpah turned back around, back to Moab. Well, this morning our passage takes place in Bethlehem, but also in the fields of Bethlehem. And if you're taking notes, I have a two-part outline for you, and it goes like this. The first part I've titled, Bitterness in Bethlehem. And the second, I've titled, Providence in the Fields. Bitterness in Bethlehem and Providence in the Fields. Well, we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19, where we begin with bitterness. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Now, I wonder what Naomi was thinking as she grew, as she drew closer to the gates of the city of Bethlehem. Notice she was going back home, back to what was familiar to her, the streets, the sounds, the smells, most importantly, the people. How would they receive her? Well, when they get into town, the writer tells us that everyone was stirred because of them. And it appears that Naomi's arrival was, it was big news. The people, as it says in some of your translations, it says that they were excited. They were excited. Now that word there, excited, really paints for us a picture as to what was going on. The word is used in 1 Samuel 4 to describe the excitement of the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant. It's also used in 1 Kings 1 uh, to describe the uproar of the coronation of Solomon the king. And so when Naomi came to Bethlehem, the people were excited. The town was buzzing. The place was ecstatic about her arrival. Now, why so much commotion? And I think for several reasons. I think it was clear, it was clear that Naomi and her family, that they had left. It appears that when the famine hit, that the people of Bethlehem, that they stayed, which made her departure all the more evident. And so it was a big deal that after 10 years, she had come back. But more so, I think that just as word reached Naomi that the famine had ended, that word reached her home that her husband and sons had died. And so the people wanted to come around her. And notice when they see her, look at verse 19, the women said, is this Naomi? They saw her appearance. They saw her face and 10 years had changed her. The affliction had, had weathered her face. The grief had increased the toll upon her body. This robust woman in her prime had returned 10 years later, destitute and worn down. And so the town of Bethlehem was stirred as Naomi returned. There was excitement and joy on the part of the people. But notice that excitement and joy that it wasn't reciprocated on the part of Naomi. Look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Beloved, notice her response is, is overrun with much bitterness. And what further perpetuates her bitterness is the joy and the excitement of the people. You see, one of the sinful mechanisms of our hearts is this. Resentment and bitterness 
in the happiness of others, right? Maybe it's hearing news that someone you know is pregnant when all you've experienced are miscarriages. Maybe it's an engagement. Maybe it's a new job. It's, it's a product of our old nature. And you see, this is what takes place in the heart of Naomi. But she tells the people, stop calling me Naomi. Now, why would she say that? It's because a name, a name in the Bible was more than just a means of physical identification, but a picture of what took place in a person's life and heart. And so you see the name Naomi means in Hebrew, pleasant one, pleasant one. And there was nothing pleasant about what had taken place in her life and what was going on inside of her heart. And so to hear the people call her Naomi, Naomi, pleasant one, pleasant one, it irritated her. She got annoyed. She couldn't hear it one more time. She said, don't call me Naomi. That's not my name. That's not what describes my life. It's the furthest feeling in my heart. Call me. And she says, Mara. And we learned what Mara meant. It was the word for bitterness. And so she says, don't call me the pleasant one, but rather call me the bitter one. I demand that you call me by this name, by this name, Mara, because this is who I am now. And notice she goes on to explain why. Notice here in verse 20, she brings four, four accusations against God. The first is this, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Second, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Third, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And here's the fourth. And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. I want you to notice here the names in which she uses in her accusations against God. She uses the name the Almighty or Shaddai in the first and fourth accusation. But notice what name she uses in the middle, in the second, and in the third accusation. It's like what we've seen before. This is a chiasm. It's a poetic tool. And do you remember where the emphasis lies? It lies in the middle. And notice the word that she uses for God in the middle. She uses the word LORD, all capital letters. It's the name Yahweh the name of the covenant-keeping God, the name of the God who promised to bless. And you see what Naomi is saying here? It's not by accident that Yahweh who keeps his covenant, that Yahweh who promised to bless has done this against me. He has dealt very bitterly with me. He has brought me back here empty. He has testified against me. He has brought calamity upon me. Again, she believes wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God, but not in his goodness and not in his love. And you see, Christian believer, aren't we all like Naomi? When the circumstances of life go badly for us, the temptation for us is to assume that God is out to get us, that God is some sort of cosmic policeman just waiting beside the highway of life for an opportunity to pull us over and to give us a ticket. And when life becomes hard, 
when difficulties come our way, and even when it's a direct result of our sin, we still often blame God and we blame his harshness for our pain. And we may not say it explicitly. No, 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 no. As Christians who go to church, we'll never say it explicitly. But the very attitude of our hearts will show it. We get filled with with bitterness. And here's the thing, Christian. We become so filled with bitterness that we miss. We miss the providential marks of his goodness to us in the midst of our afflictions. You see, Naomi was so busy complaining about her emptiness that she missed the fact that God was only doing so to fill it with something far greater, the blessing of life and the blessing of redemption. You see, she was so caught up in what she had lost that she couldn't see the far greater treasure in Ruth. And this is what we do. We too, like Naomi, we we cling desperately to these small treasures when God intends for us far greater And when God takes them away, we get angry, we become bitter, and we feel the same sentiment as Naomi that God is somehow not for us, but against us. Helpful in my studies in the book of Ruth has been a book called Famine to Fullness by an author by the name of Dean Ulrich, and he writes this, we often judge God's love and faithfulness by how many of our desires have been met. When our desires do not materialize, our hearts are very telling. Too often, it is not God's will that we want, but our will made possible by God. You see, he says that here's the problem that we have. We make God the servant of our own selfish agendas. And when we don't get what we want, when God takes away what we covet, we become bitter. And not only bitter, but we become delusional in our thinking. I want you to notice what Naomi said here. She said in verse 20, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And look what she says. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now we have to ask the question here. Did, did, did Naomi leave Bethlehem? Did she leave full? The irony is that she went away because she was hungry, remember? She left because there was a famine. She left because there was nothing in Bethlehem. She actually went away empty. And in what manner? What manner did she return? She returned with Ruth, who would become the means for which the salvation of Israel would come and of the world. And you see, this is what happens in bitterness. The inability to think with spiritual clarity. Why does God sometimes take things away that have become so precious to us? Even things that are good in and of themselves. It's because he wants us to live by his sufficient grace in the midst of weakness, in the midst of loss. You see, God, he doesn't bring trials and he doesn't bring losses into our lives because he hates us and is seeking to afflict us or to get even with us for our sin. No, you see, we have to remember we are his children, and he loves us. And through the loss, he wants us to receive something far more precious than all the trinkets to which we become so desperately attached. He wants to give us more of himself. You see, he wants to give us Christ, 
more of Christ. And Christian, what more than Christ can we ever ask for? You know, when Naomi changed her name to Mara, do you know what she forgot? She forgot the whole Exodus story. That in the wilderness for the Israelites, where the waters were bitter and undrinkable, that despite the people's grumbling and complaining, do you remember what God ultimately did? In that place of grumbling, God made the bitter's waters sweet. That even though the Israelites were undeserving, God, by his grace, demonstrated, it says in Exodus 15, that he was their healer. And so you see, Mara, Mara wasn't just a place of bitterness, but a place where God's grace to grumblers was displayed. And so she forgot the whole story. And don't we often forget, Christian, the whole story? We most certainly often do. That at the end of the day, I don't deserve an ounce. I don't deserve an ounce of anything good from God in heaven. Yet despite my rebellion, despite my complaining, despite my sin, he gave me himself in the person of Christ. And against whom, against whom did the Almighty, the hand of the Almighty, truly go out in bitter judgment? The answer is not me. And it's not you. You see, the hand of the Almighty went out in bitter judgment against his son. That's the real story. That the hand of the Almighty went out against Christ. You see, we too, we often forget the whole story. You see, Christian, if we really want to think about our own place of bitterness, we'll find that it really is a place of grace. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The writer of the story provides for us a summary that Naomi and her daughter-in-law, they returned from Moab. But more than that, Naomi returned from Moab, devastated and stricken with grief. She had hit rock bottom. But notice the sliver of light here in verse 22, that when they came, they did so at the beginning of barley harvest. The writer is telling us in the story, he's showing us that Naomi is not reading the events correctly. That while her eyes are here, that God was operating up here. And this verse really sets the stage for the next act in Ruth chapter 2 where we move on from bitterness in Bethlehem to providence in the fields. Well, the beginning of barley harvest was the first crop to be harvested within the context of Israel, which meant that Naomi and Ruth had come to Bethlehem at the most opportune time, just when the grain for bread was about to be cut. And so all that means is that more food would follow. Food was going to be plentiful. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now this verse, chapter 2, verse 1, it's a very odd verse. And the information that we're given here is sort of out of place, and it doesn't seem to line up with the story. And the reason why I say that is this. I want you to look at verse, chapter 1, verse 22, 
because it seamlessly transitions to chapter 2, verse 2. And so let me read it with that transition. Let's just take out chapter 2, verse 1. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And Ruth, Ruth the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. Notice that chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 2, verse 2 appear chronologically to go right next to each other. And so what is chapter 2, verse 1? It appears out of place. It's the writer introducing to us a new character. But why do it now? Aren't we going to learn more about him as the story unfolds in the book of Ruth? Well, it's the writer's way of telling us to keep our eyes fixed on this man named Boaz. And here's the description that we're given of him. First, that he's not just a friend of Naomi or an acquaintance of Naomi, but a relative. And not just a relative, but one from not her side, but from her husband's side, from the clan of Elimelech, which is an important detail in the story. Secondly, that he was a worthy man. Literally, it says that in the Hebrew, that he was a mighty man of valor. And the description given to Boaz is the same description given to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. But notice here, Boaz, he doesn't lead an army. Boaz doesn't go out to battle. So how is he a mighty man of valor? It's because he's heroic in his character, in his character. Notice the story continues in chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And so Ruth takes it upon herself to care for the both of them. And being younger, she's stronger. She asked Naomi to take to the fields. Now, here in this story, in the context of Israel, provision was made in the law of God for the well-being of the poor. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so harvesters, they weren't allowed to pick up every single crop, but they had to leave some of the crops alone. Some of us, Myself, we tend to be a little bit stingy. We would want to pick up all the crops, right? But when crops fell on the ground, you had to leave it on the ground. That when they passed through the field to collect their fruits and their vegetables, they could only pass through once. And any food left or dropped on the ground had to be left alone for the less fortunate to gather. And it was a part of God's law so that the Israelites would demonstrate God's love to one another. And it was a very tangible expression of how God had been kind and generous to the Israelites, in which in turn they now had to follow. But gleaning, gleaning on the other hand, it wasn't easy. It was hard work. It was hot work. And it wasn't necessarily safe work. Not every landowner desired to obey the provisions of the law. Remember, we're not far from the time of the judges. Remember, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And notice how the writer repeatedly mentions that Ruth was a Moabite. Chapter 1, verse 22, Ruth the Moabite. Chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth the Moabite. In other words, she was a foreigner. 
and of all foreigners, one from a hostile country, which meant the likelihood of Ruth being harassed, the likelihood of Ruth being attacked. It was high, and she had no one to protect her, no family member, no clan to clan connection to save her. Yet she asked Naomi to glean the leftovers from the field in which Naomi agrees. Chapter 2, verse 2. Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. You see, church, this right here becomes a pivotal point in the story. Whose field did she come to? The field belonging to Boaz. Out of all the fields that were spread out throughout Bethlehem, she found herself gleaning in his. To the field of a man who was gracious and heroic in character. To the field of a man who was from the family of Elimelech. Ruth, Ruth, she had no idea. Ruth had no clue. Neither did Naomi. Naomi offered Ruth no suggestion as to where she should start. Naomi simply gave a half-hearted consent. Go ahead, Ruth. You, you can go. So what's happening here in this story? It was God operating up here. It was his divine providence. It was God's providence at work in the fields. Look back at in chapter 2, verse 3, and notice how the writer draws this out. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now hear this. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now when we read our Bibles, notice it says this. She happened to come. The Hebrew reads like this. Her chance chanced the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She chance chanced. She happened to come. Does the writer really believe that it was blind chance? That it was just simple coincidence? That it was just good luck? Absolutely not. The writer to the story of Ruth has mastery over the story and is getting us and is wanting us to think about the providence of God. From a human perspective, Ruth happened to glean in Boaz's field. She wandered into his field without intention or even any knowledge. But from God's perspective, Ruth was on Boaz's property by design. It was no accident. It, it wasn't chance, but the very doing of God. And so you see, everything that had happened to Naomi and Ruth over the last 10 years had been foreordained by God to bring them to this moment. God was orchestrating it all behind the scenes. God was the conductor and the characters, the musicians. God was doing something here significant. He's making the music of redemption in the lives of these two women and now this man. And the lesson that he's trying to teach us is this, that God is at work behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose in our lives. That nothing happens in our lives by chance or by karma 
or by a random roll of dice or bad luck, but is the providential hand of God, which is to say, yes, God is sovereign, and yes, God is good. Amen? Which means that seemingly small and insignificant decisions serve his purpose in our lives. From what people might see as day-to-day encounters to accidents in history, they all advance his will. And what we find from the story of Ruth is that his purpose and will is good. But here's what you might be thinking. Here's what you might be thinking. Pastor Danny, I find that crippling. If every decision, if every action, if every circumstance, if every incident is in the hands of a providential God, then how do I live? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to make decisions in my life? And the answer is this. By simply trusting in the one who is working all things for your good. That's how you live. This is why we don't have to be so anxious about anything and everything. Christian believer, are you trusting in him in the midst of all that is taking place around you? Now you might be asking, what do you mean, Pastor Danny, by trusting? You've been talking about that. Are you looking to him and to his word more so than your circumstances? You see, for us, we need to look to Jesus. At the end of the day, we need to look beyond Ruth and we need to look beyond Naomi and we need to look to Jesus and to his example. That in the most agonizing moments of affliction, he continued entrusting himself to his father when he said, not my will, but your will be done. One of my favorite verses comes in Isaiah chapter 26, verse three. And there the prophet says, Those whose mind is stayed on you, you keep them in perfect peace. This is how God wants us to live. This is what trusting faith means, that our minds and our eyes be stayed on him no matter what, no matter what storms would come our way. And beloved, this is the story of Ruth. And we haven't even talked about Boaz being Ruth's redeemer. For that, I encourage you to finish the story on your own. But you see, more so, this story intends for us to think about our Redeemer, who on our behalf does all things well in trial, in tribulation, in heartache and loss, no matter what. And so, church, let us be trusting in him. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, oh, how we need you and how we need Christ. We find that it's only in Christ that we can truly see what you're doing in our lives. That it's only in Christ that you do all things well. Lord, help us to interpret all the things that take place in our lives in the light of your sovereign and good hand. And though we might not see what is right in front of us, Lord, help us to see what you are truly doing. 
that you are etching us and, Lord, you are sketching us and you are inscribing us closer into the image of Christ. Would we entrust our lives to you? We thank you. We thank you that suffering and death is the way to life. And we thank you that in your suffering and death, you gave us life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.